Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha. Again, we are glad that you're here, especially if you're new or visiting. My name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders at Hiawatha. And one of the privileges and joys of being an elder is you get to preach a couple times a year. Usually I say one to two times a year, but since this is my fourth sermon this year, I won't say that because I'd be a liar. So, but you get to preach every now and then, and it's great. And if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that we have just started a sermon series in John. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, you just found out we started a sermon series in John. That'll take us about 18 months. So around Easter of 2023, we will finish John, Lord willing. We are still in John chapter 1. Today's sermon is come and you will see, as Peter said already, this section of John is Jesus calling the first couple disciples. And as always, when we see things Jesus is doing in Scripture, there's a lot of cool stuff to see and a lot of good gospel reminders for us to be reminded of. So let us get into it and see what Christ has for us today. John 1, 35-42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called not just Peter and Andrew and James and John and the other 12 that you called, but that you've called us. We thank you that you still call, that it's not just something you did then, but you continue to call. We thank you that your death and resurrection means that we are able to answer that call because of your spirit and your power. Uh, we praise you, Jesus, for what you've done and who you are and for your word. I pray that you'd uh, bless my preaching now and that you would... For each person, give them what they need to hear, including me. Amen. All right. So if you haven't been to Hiawatha before, the way we usually preach is we have a chunk of text, and then we just kind of walk through it and see what God has to say in it. So let's do that. Starting at the beginning, we're going to look at four different things in this passage, four statements or questions that are made, uh, both by Jesus and um, by... Uh, the disciples of John, who become Jesus' disciples. So starting at the beginning, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So a little context, it says the next day again, if you've been following kind of the timeline flow in John so far, this is the third day in a row. So the first two chapters of John take place over about a week or a week and a half, give or take. So the first day... Uh, some people came to John who was preaching out in the wilderness, some Pharisees and other religious leaders, and said, who are you? And they had an exchange about that. And John basically said, I'm not the Christ, but I'm here to prepare the way for him. And then the second day, Jesus came to John 
and was baptized by John. And so now this is the third day in a row that things are happening, just for those of you who are interested in the timeline. So John is still out in the wilderness. He's standing with two of his disciples. So John had disciples. Many teachers or rabbis or religious leaders would have disciples, which were just followers that sat under their teaching, observed what they were doing, and either tried to emulate them or learn from them or something like that. So John has some disciples. And then we see that just like the day before, Jesus comes by. Now, I don't have this on the screen, but it's interesting. If you look at the passage from last week, it says Jesus actually came towards John, like he walked to John specifically. In this passage, Jesus is just walking by. So he's not specifically going to John and his disciples, but he's in the area. He's walking by. And as he walks by, John sees him and says to his disciples, look, Behold, it's the Lamb of God. Now last week, John used almost the exact same phrase. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're going to look for just a few minutes at this idea of beholding and then the Lamb of God. Like, what does that mean? What would people have thought? Why does John call Jesus the Lamb of God? So first, behold means obviously to look. But it doesn't just mean to look like if you glance at this or that or happen to see a bird fly by your window or something. To behold is to gaze upon or to observe. So to look at intently, to look at with intentionality, to look at not just for a moment, but to spend some time looking at it, observing it, gazing upon it. And especially with behold, people usually behold something that's remarkable or impressive. So you might behold a sunset that you think is very beautiful. Or maybe the first time you see the ocean or see the woods, you would behold that because you're in awe of it. So when John says, behold Jesus, he's not just saying, oh, look, there goes Jesus. He's walking by. He's saying, no, this is something, this is someone who's remarkable and impressive. This is someone who's worth gazing upon, worth observing. Which leads to the question then, okay, what was remarkable and impressive about Jesus? And in one sense, the answer is everything. But specifically in this passage, the remarkable, impressive thing about Jesus is that he was the Lamb of God. So if you don't know much about the Old Testament, lambs were an animal that were used for sacrifices in the Old Testament. And specifically, on the Day of Atonement, which was one day a year where the high priest, who was like Israel's top religious uh, leader for the people, he would have to sacrifice a lamb and do all these specific things in a specific way, and then he would enter into God's presence, and through this whole process, the sins of the entire nation would be forgiven. And if he didn't do things correctly, he would be destroyed by God, killed, and so there's this process you go through. You can read about in the book of Leviticus if you're interested. But basically, for the Jews, uh, John's two disciples who were Jews, when they heard John say, it's the Lamb of God, that's the type of imagery that would have come to mind. It's like, wait, what? Wait, there's a man walking by and not an animal, and you're saying he's the Lamb of God? Like, he's a sacrifice, or he's related to that in some way? Like, what does that even mean? I don't understand that. And then also, the Lamb, during the Day of Atonement, would be brought by a person. And now John here is saying, this is the Lamb of God. God is bringing this Lamb, not a person. And so for them, they would have kind of understood the general area that John was talking in, but this would have been kind of a confusing statement for them because this wasn't how it worked. 
So what does it mean then that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? It means for them and for us, Jesus is the one, just like that lamb that was killed in its blood, Jesus is the lamb that stands between you and God's destruction. Let's read from Exodus. So this day of atonement, this use of uh, the lamb as a sacrifice all started in Exodus 12. This is when Israel has been enslaved to Egypt and they're about to leave when Moses and Pharaoh have their back and forth of let my people go. No, I won't. Then God sends a plague. Okay, I'll let them go. Actually, I won't. God sends another plague. So God's about to send the final plague and kill all the firstborn in Egypt, all the firstborn people, so every firstborn son or daughter, and also the firstborn of all the livestock of the animals. So God tells Moses this is going to happen, gives Moses instructions so that the Israelites won't have their firstborns killed. And then, let's read from Exodus 12, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So basically he says, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, then take a bunch of hyssop. So hyssop was branches. So basically make a paintbrush, dip the paintbrush in the blood from the slain lamb, and paint the top and the two sides of your doorpost with the blood. And then when the destroyer comes through, he'll see that and he won't go into those houses and destroy. So that blood, that lamb, that sacrifice stood between the Israelites and God's destruction. Jesus, and specifically his death and the blood that he shed, stands between us and God's destruction. But no longer is it painted on our house, it's painted on us. Scripture says we're covered in Christ's blood. So when God's destruction approaches, Christ is now the filter that God sees us through. And he sees that blood, he sees Christ's sacrifice and death, and he says, oh, no destruction for you, life. Not because of what you've done, or because you've measured up to some standard, but because my son, Jesus, stands between me, stands between you and my destruction. Hiawatha, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb that stands between you and God's destruction, that stands between me and God's destruction. Then, The two disciples, they hear this. It piques their curiosity. And so on to verse 37. The two disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. So Jesus keeps walking by. The two disciples hear John speak. They start following him. And then Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And rabbi means teacher. People of Hiawatha, what are you seeking? As you sit here this morning, or if you're listening online to this, what are you seeking? And not just here this morning in this room, although that's part of it, but in life. What is it you seek? What is it you pursue? What is it that gives you joy and satisfaction when you obtain it? What is it that gives you disappointment when you don't obtain it? Or when you do and find it less satisfying than you thought it would be? 
what are you seeking? What am I seeking? What are we seeking? Notice here, now we know the end of the story. This is John 1, but we know John 21. We know that Jesus is not just a man, he's God. We know that he didn't just come to teach or to work miracles, but to save us from sin. And so when they come to Jesus, look at what they call him. They call him rabbi. They call him teacher. Now that's not false. Jesus was a teacher and the greatest teacher. So their view of him isn't wrong, but it's incomplete. Because Jesus wasn't primarily a rabbi. He wasn't primarily a teacher. He was primarily a savior. Jesus didn't come to teach us a bunch of things, to teach us lists of to-dos and to-don'ts, or to teach us how to be better people, or to teach us to emulate him. He came to teach us that we have a huge problem with God because we're on the side of God's destruction. He came to teach us that there's a solution to the problem, but it's not one that we can do on our own, that we need God's help. He came to teach us that he's not just a teacher, he's the Savior. That his death and resurrection bridges the gap between us and God. That he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So when they call him rabbi, that's actually not a great view of who Jesus is. It's not totally wrong, it's partly correct, but their view is incomplete. And it also shows what are they seeking in that moment. They're not seeking a savior, even though John just said he's the Lamb of God. They're not seeking a Messiah. They're seeking a rabbi. They're seeking a teacher. The phrase they, uh, that they say, where are you staying? That's not just curiosity of, so where do you stay? What's your house look like? What's your furniture layout? So if you found a rabbi and you wanted to study under them, you would need to know where they were. A rabbi typically would go to a place, a town or a village, and kind of set up shop and people would come to them and some would just come like for the day and go home at night. Some would come and live in that house or that area. So they're asking him, Rabbi, we think you're a teacher. We think you're worth listening to. Where are you staying? Can we come stay with you? Can we come sit at your feet? Can we come learn from you? Will you teach us? That's what they're asking there. Their view is incomplete. Rabbi, where are you staying? To paraphrase, other people in Scripture ask things like, of Jesus, miracle worker, where are you healing? Good man, where are you helping? These statements are not false. Jesus did work miracles and heal. He was a good man. Scripture says actually most people, their kind of one-sentence description of Jesus was, oh yeah, he was a man who went about doing good. So he was a good man. He went about helping and doing good. But these are all incomplete questions. These are all not the primary question. Hiawatha, what are you seeking? Are you just seeking a rabbi? Are you just seeking a miracle worker? Are you just seeking a good man? Are you just seeking knowledge about something and you want Jesus to teach you that? Are you just seeking supernatural intervention in your life and you want Jesus to work a miracle? Are you just seeking a good man who does good things that you can follow and hopefully do good things? To seek God to teach you is not bad, that's good. To seek God to work miracles in your life is not bad, that's good. To understand that Jesus was a good man is a great thing. But those are not the primary thing. Primarily, we seek a savior. Primarily, we seek a, the one who taught us the greatest teaching 
of how he conquered sin on our behalf. Primarily, we seek the one who worked the greatest miracle that will ever be worked when he died and raised himself from the dead. Who else has ever raised themselves from the dead? Primarily, we seek someone who's not just a good man who did good things, but a good man who died a horrible death that we deserve to die. And in doing so, brings goodness to us, not that he enables us to do our own good things, but we receive his goodness. Like a child, a child doesn't make their own clothes, their parents give them clothes and the child puts it on. We don't make our own righteousness. Christ gives us a garment of righteousness that he made, and we just put it on and wear it. What are you seeking? Some encouragement with that and some clarification on it. From Luke 11, so this is a different gospel, the gospel of Luke, not John. This is also Jesus talking. And this is right after Jesus teaches his disciples that they should pray and how they should pray. And then he says to them, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now remember, this is Jesus speaking, so these words are true. These are not just him saying, well, I think it will be this way, but I'm not really sure. If Jesus says this is the way it is, then this is the way it is. So people of Hiawatha believe this, because Jesus says it. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And now you think, this is great. That house I wanted, that car I wanted, that job I wanted, that relationship I wanted, whatever it is, I can ask God and he'll give it to me because Jesus just said, if I ask, I'll receive it. If I seek, I'll find it. Let's read the rest in context. Then Jesus gives uh, an example of this. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Basically saying, Which of you parents, if your child asks for food, will instead poison or kill him? No, you won't do that. You'll give them food. You won't poison them. You won't give them a poisonous snake. You won't give them a poisonous scorpion. You'll give them the food that they want. You'll satisfy their hunger. And then he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus' statement in verses 9 and 10 is not a blanket statement of anything you ask, I'm going to give you. He gives us good gifts. The child who asks for fish or an egg or meat, that food, that sustenance that is needed, the parent gives. But a child who asks for a cookie, the parent sometimes says no. And there could be a hundred reasons for that. It could be, well, it's too close to mealtime. Or you already had ten cookies today and you don't get any more. Or, well, this cookie is gluten, and you're gluten intolerant, so you can't have it. It would actually harm you, not help you. So often, the things we ask for that are cookies, we think are fish and eggs. The things we ask for, we think, are things we require for sustenance. And God says, actually, that's just a cookie. That's just sugar. It's not bad what you're asking for, but that's not necessity in the way that you think it is. But look at the thing that Jesus says God will always give in verse 13. He will always give himself. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus says, if people who are evil can give good gifts, how much more will God, who's not evil but good, give the greatest gifts? 
The gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of salvation, the gift of God himself. That is the gift that is never denied. That is never delayed. That God never says, "Mm, you can't have that later. Or you can't have that tomorrow. Or you can't have that with dinner, but not with breakfast. That's the gift that's always given. So they ask, the two disciples ask where Jesus is staying. And then verse 39, Jesus said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And the 10th hour is approximately 4 p.m. So it's mid to late afternoon, and they come, they see where Jesus is staying, and they hang out with him. That's what they're doing. They're hanging out. They're listening to whatever he was saying that day, watching whatever he was doing. That's what they're doing. Notice Jesus' statement here. The statement is, come and you will see. It is not, see and you will come. And that word order is extremely important. Remember, they thought he was just a rabbi. And Jesus doesn't say, actually, you're not seeing clearly. Like, I am a rabbi, that's not false, but I'm more than a rabbi. So when you can see clearly, then I'll let you come. Figure out this rabbi savior thing and then you can come. He doesn't say, well, you're just curious. You're not really devoted to me, so no. Once you see that more clearly, then you will come. He doesn't say to them, wow, you two are so messed up. And I can't take you when you're messed up. So clean yourself up, see to that, and then you can come. No, Jesus says, come and you will see. It's easy for us to get in that mindset of thinking, I have to understand. I have to know. I have to be a certain way. I have to do certain things. I have to attain a certain level of self-imposed righteousness, whatever that standard even means or is. And then when those things are done, I can come to Jesus. If you're sitting in the room this morning and you don't believe in Jesus and you're just here because you're curious or because someone invited you or maybe someone kept nagging you and just to get him off your back, you thought, all right, I'll come once and then maybe they'll stop asking me. Whatever the reason is, you're doing the same thing the disciples are doing. You're coming and you're seeing. Don't think you have to see first. Don't think you have to have all the questions answered or have it all figured out. The only question you have to think about is who is Jesus? And how do you know who someone is? Well, you can know some things from what other people say or reading things that are written about them. But ultimately, to know someone, to know who someone is, you spend time with them. You interact with them. So we are glad you're here. And what you're doing right now is coming and seeing. You've come, and now, through God speaking through me, through interactions with other people, through worship, through prayer, through communion, you get to see pieces of who God is, of who Christ is. You have come, and now Christ is showing you. He's helping you to see. It's come, and you will see. Not see, and you will come. Jesus invites us to him. We don't invite ourselves to him. He invites us to him, though we don't see clearly. He invites us to him, though we see incorrectly in some ways or incompletely. Be encouraged by that, Hiawatha. Come and you will see. If you're doubting and struggling, come and you will see. 
If life is going great and you're rejoicing, come and you will see. If you're here and you have no idea why we're here, what this Jesus stuff is, anything about it, come and you will see. So they come, they stay with him, they see. And what will they see? It doesn't tell us the specifics of what they see, but looking at what we've already preached in John, just looking at the first 20, 30-ish verses, here are some things that John has said we are going to see about Jesus as we go through the gospel. We are going to see, and they were going to see, that Jesus is the word of God and is God. They're going to see the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. We're going to see Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus. We're going to see in Jesus is life. We're going to see that Jesus is the true light shining in the darkness. We're going to see that all who receive Jesus become children of God. We're going to see Jesus' glory full of grace and truth. Unlike God's glory in the Old Testament, which was full of wrath and punishment. Christ's glory is full of grace and truth. We're going to see that from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus pours out to us, and it's from fullness, from overflowing. He just keeps pouring out, and that never runs dry. We're going to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's just from chapter 1. There's 21 chapters. There's a lot we're going to see. So they come, they see, they spend time with Jesus. And then, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And then, so they spend time with Jesus, then they go. And Andrew, once he leaves Jesus, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And Cephas and Peter both mean rock uh, in two different languages. So look at Andrew's change just in this short passage. When he first sees Jesus walking by and follows him, he calls him rabbi and teacher. Now, when he goes to his brother, Peter, to tell him about Jesus, he doesn't say, we found a rabbi, or we found the rabbi. He says, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the one who came to save us. What was it that made that change? It wasn't studying some document. It wasn't doing a bunch of research. It was spending time with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus, and that transformed his understanding of who Jesus was. The same is true for us. Spending time with Jesus is the best way to gain understanding of who he is. And you might ask, well, how do we do that? Like, Jesus isn't physically here. I can't go sit down and talk to him. We do it through the church. The church is Christ's body. Spend time with the people of Hiawatha, both here on a Sunday morning and outside of that, through community groups, through informal gatherings. As we do that, our understanding of Christ is transformed. Spend time in his word. These are the words that God spoke to us about himself, about who he is, the words that Christ spoke to us. Spend time in the Bible and be transformed in your understanding of who Jesus is. Have that transformation from rabbi to Messiah, from miracle worker to Messiah, 
from good man to Messiah. And then, look at what the result of that is. When that transformation happens in Andrew, what does he do? He finds his brother, someone he cares about and knows, and he brings him to Jesus. If you are asking now in your life or have asked before, what does it mean to tell people about Jesus? What is evangelism? What is missions? Like, what do I do? What does that mean? This is what it looks like. You bring people to Jesus. Know that Andrew doesn't try and be Peter's Messiah. He doesn't say, I found the Messiah and he told me this stuff and did this stuff, so now I'm going to tell you all this and I'm going to save you. He doesn't do that. All he does is say, hey, we found the Messiah, you have to come see him. Don't come see me while I tell you all about him. Come see him. Come sit at his feet. Come hear what he has to say. Come see what he's doing. People of Hiawatha, that's what it means to evangelize. Bring people to Jesus. You are not people's savior. I am not people's savior. Don't try and be people's Messiah. Bring them to the Messiah. And it's difficult, right? When there are people we love and care about that are without Christ in the world, we want that for them. And it's hard to not see that happen right away. And it's easy to blame ourselves to say, oh, I couldn't answer their questions and that's why they didn't believe. Or I didn't present this well and that's why they didn't believe. Or I stumbled over my words and that's why they didn't believe. That's not why they didn't believe. Bring them to Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the one who brings belief. Not us. Look at this uh, verse from Mark 5. So this is after, in Mark 5, Jesus heals a man who's been demon-possessed and casts out the demon. And the man is obviously very thankful. And then says to Jesus, that was incredible. I want to go with you. I want to see what you're doing. I want to be with you. Please let me go with you. And Jesus says to the man, no, you can't come with me right now. But here's what I want you to do. Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. People of Hiawatha, this is what evangelism is. To go to people and to tell them these two things. What has God done for you? How has he had mercy on you? That's it. It's not to answer all their questions. It's not to have the answers to all the objections that they might have about God and faith and salvation. Tell people, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is how he's had mercy on me. For those of you in the, for all of us, but especially for those in the room who do not believe, be encouraged by the fact that God is already doing things for you and already having mercy on you. God says in scripture, I make rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. I give food to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you ate food today, or if you're a person who skips breakfast and you will eat food later. That's a gift from God. God is having mercy on you. He's doing something for you. If you go outside today and the sun is shining, God made that happen for you. And you didn't have to do anything about it. God says, if you're not a believer, you're his enemy. And we were all his enemy at one point. And even as enemies, when I was God's enemy, he still did things for me. He still had mercy on me. But the ultimate mercy and the ultimate good he does for us is Jesus Christ, is salvation, is Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that saves us from our sin. So be encouraged by the mercy God has already given you, by the good he's already done for you. But also understand that those things are just small tastes 
small pieces of a great feast. And the meat of that feast, the core of that feast, is Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you don't believe that yet, come and see. Hang around. Get to know Jesus. See what he says about himself. See what he does. See what happens with his death and resurrection. And let God transform your understanding of who Jesus is. Finally, verse 42, when uh, Simon Peter comes to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, you're Simon the son of John, you shall be called Peter. Jesus renames Peter. And for us, that's like, okay, that's fine. Why would he do that? For them, naming had huge importance. To name something was to take ownership of it was to invest in it in different ways. So when Jesus renames Peter, he's not just saying, oh yeah, your parents named you Simon, but actually you should have been named Peter. You're much more a Peter than a Simon, so I'm going to rename you. He's saying, no, you've come to me and I'm renaming you, and I now am taking ownership and possession of you. But what he means by that is, I now am invested in your well-being. I now am caring for you. You now have value to me. You are something that I care about, that I'm investing in. Now, all people have value to God in one sense. In another sense, those who believe, we become not just God's friends, but God's family. We become his children. We become Christ's brothers and sisters. And that's what Jesus is kind of foreshadowing here in renaming Peter. So as we close, people of Hiawatha, in conclusion, an application. Remember, Hiawatha, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look intently. Study that. People of Hiawatha, what are you seeking? Are you seeking Jesus Christ? And for all of us, often the answer is no, I'm seeking other things. But be encouraged by the fact that Jesus is seeking you. Now notice at the beginning, Jesus didn't walk towards John and the disciples, but he walked by. John and the disciples weren't the ones out walking, looking for Jesus. They were standing around talking about whatever. And Jesus intentionally went to where they were and walked by them, knowing everything that would follow. Right now, Jesus is walking by you. And I don't mean physically walking through the room, but God's word coming from my mouth the interaction with other people at Hiawatha, the singing we're about to do, everything we do here in this room, everything we do throughout the week that points back to Jesus, Jesus is walking by you. Three, come and you will see. It's not seeing you will come. If that's what you believe, that is false. That is demonic. That is self-focused, not Christ-focused. It's come and you will see. And then finally, Bring people to Jesus. Don't try and be their savior. Don't fear when you don't have the answer. Just bring them to Jesus so that they can behold the Lamb of God for themselves. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that you tell us, come and you will see, not see and you will come. We thank you that you give us, uh, as Christians, not a list of to-dos and to-don'ts for other people, but just to tell them, hey, this is what God's done for me. This is how he's had mercy on me. And that's it. That's all we do. 
You're the one who saves people. You're the one who brings them to yourself. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that, and thank you that it's not our ultimate responsibility because that's not something we can do. Amen.